0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the BSG Uncut. My name is Martin Hirsch, I'm a consultant gynecologist in Oxford, England, and today I'm joined by Dr. Pietro Bortoletto. He's a Senior Clinical Fellow in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Weill Cornell Centre for Reproductive Medicine and Surgery in New York City. He also serves as an Interactive Associate-in-Chief at Fertility and Sterility as well as media editor for the new Fertility and Sterility sister journal entitled Fertility and Sterility Reports. He has a clinical interest in reproductive surgery, in particular malarian anomalies and complex pelvic surgery. So welcome, Pietro. Uh, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, Martin. Thank you so much. Having me really excited to join you on this wonderful podcast.
0: Not at all. It's great to have esteemed colleagues from from over the pond uh, with a slightly different view on things. So, uh, if we jump straight in, if you could tell me a little bit more about your role and how you came to becoming associate chief of interactive media at Fertility and Sterility.
1: Sure, it's um, kind of a funny role. I think the the leadership of the journal probably a decade back realized that the print article is just not sufficient if you're really trying to disseminate new literature to a new audience. So they were pretty progressive and formed this group called the Interactive Associates, which were really tasked with taking the print journal to the internet and taking the print journal to social media. And I joined the group of Interactive Associates now, probably three years ago. And one of the things that we started working on that was kind of Innovative and unique, and was another first for fertility and sterility. Were these things called tutorials, and hopefully some of your readers and members of the BSGE are familiar with them. But if you aren't, you should follow the fertility and sterility Twitter account. It was a way for us to disseminate academic literature in a really unique and palatable way through Twitter. And over the course of a series of threads, we would introduce the topic, discuss the findings, discuss the limitations and tag and involve all kinds of people in the discussion about the article. And it kind of became a bit of an online journal club that we had amongst ourselves on Twitter. And I think through that experience, we've been able to do a couple of more interesting things as interactive associates. And all of this kind of culminated this summer when We had a switch in leadership at the editorial role for Fertility and Sterility, and I had the opportunity to step into the role of Associate-in-Chief of the Interactive Associates. In this role, I oversee 18 different Interactive Associates, mostly North American members, but certainly some European members. And I'll put this in as a plug. We're actively looking for more European, South American, and Asian um, members to join our fold uh, to help disseminate this stuff on fertility and sterility. Um, and it's a group of 18 of us working to to share the work that people submit to fertility and sterility to as broad of an audience as we can be on just the print journal.
0: Do you need to be a millennial to apply for this post?
1: You know, it certainly helps. I think one of the one of the challenges that we've had is because we're such a large and diverse group, and by diverse I mean age, language, ability, and savviness with social media. That I think there's definitely something to it. The millennials are a little bit quicker at understanding how to put together a tutorial, how to post a video on Instagram, and certainly how to put together visual abstracts, which is another thing that the Fertility and Sterility Interactive Associates are really spearheading for the journal.
0: Lovely, and I'm certainly trying to get my head around all the different social media platforms. And uh, you know, I, I registered on Twitter a while back, uh, and more recently looking into. Instagram, but they all have their kind of unique aspects of being able to deliver uh, medical information to a different audience. Um, and Do fertility and sterility see a role in delivering information to patients, or, or are you looking more at professional audience?
1: You know, depending on which platform you are, I think you're speaking to a very different group. Our Twitter account, which is, I think, our busiest account, was really geared towards speaking to other reproductive endocrinologists and people in reproductive medicine, But over the course of the last few years, as we've disseminated literature in a more palatable way, we've seen patient advocacy groups come into the fold. And as we've expanded now to Instagram, we have really started reaching general OBGYNs outside of reproductive medicine, certainly patient advocacy groups, but also just patients directly with information that usually lives behind a paywall or behind a subscription. And it's been really fun to see them... Interact with our content, share our content, participate in Q and As, and that's something I think neither none of us had expected, but we we're really excited that is happening. Because at the end of the day, this information is for us, but it's also going to benefit
0: them. Certainly, and I'm sure over here in the UK, we'd we'd love to um, engage in, and interact more with the uh, information that's being delivered from a principally am, am American based um, journal, um, and so. Uh, I also would recommend any millennial listeners out there uh, that are part of the BSG or, or feel that they can contribute to uh, get in touch with Pietro and the team at Fertility and Sterility.
1: The next big challenge, I think, for us in a professional capacity is how do we share the news about our family journals? So Fertility and Sterility recently launched FNS Reviews, FNS Science, and FNS Reports three separate online only journals that have kind of very distinct missions. And as Associate in Interactive, Interactive Associate in Chief for FNS, I'm also responsible for making sure that we're disseminating the literature that we're publishing in those journals as well. So that's kind of the next big thing on our horizon. And I think this is another plug for BSG members who are looking to get involved in a North American journal, have certain expertise in the in the basic sciences, in clinical trials, in, in research methodology. We would love your expertise and would love you to, to join our ranks and help us understand how to effectively share this content broadly.
0: Wow. I mean, it sounds like you've got a full-time job just running the delivery of information for fertility and sterility, not to mention the fact that you're working full-time. Is this right, as a reproductive endocrinologist in New York?
1: So I have, I have the benefit of being at the tail end of my training in reproductive endocrinology. So I have just a handful of months left before I really do make that transition to being full-time clinician. I, the fellowship structure in the United States is such that you complete four years of obstetrics and gynecology residency, and then a three-year fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. And during those three years, you have both clinical and research time. And somehow the gods worked it out that my research time happened to coincide with the time that I had to take on this new role. So it's actually been a very smooth transition. But uh, this time next summer, we'll have to rediscuss and rejoin the podcast, and I'll tell you how it's going.
0: Pietro, if we can move on to just an everyday rota for you, right? what does that look like to you? What does a standard day look like for you?
1: So, on a really nice clinical day, and those are some of my favorites, the, the IVF practice here at while Cornell is one of the busiest academic programs, certainly in North America, but probably in the world. We cycle upwards of 5,000 patients every year. Our mornings start early, 6.30, where we do both ultrasound and serum monitoring for president patients undergoing ART care. And over the course of the morning, we scan anywhere from 50 to 100 patients. After the morning's complete and monitoring's done, we start to make dosing decisions on patients and figure out where we need to change gonadotropin and dosing, where we need to administer an ovulatory trigger. And that's how we spend the rest of the morning. At any given point, we'll have upwards of 100 patients cycling at any given time. So it's quite a busy schedule. And then the afternoons are spent doing embryo transfers after you finish dosing your patients. That's a clinical day. The surgical days, I think, are even more fun. Um, there are a handful of places in the United States where you actually have very busy reproductive surgery training within a infertility fellowship. And while Cornell is certainly one of them, one of the things that we get to do here is we spend two days a week operating. And surgery for us can look like complex hysteroscopy where we're managing complete septums can look like malaria anomaly surgery, where we're handling ovira syndrome, where we're handling vaginal agenesis, um, or where we're doing laparoscopic malaria anomaly surgery. But then you get the mix of nice endometriosis and adnexal pathology that requires a a trained hand to be able to really maximize fertility, treat symptoms, and and get them to that pregnancy that they so desire. And those are some of the best days for us here at Weill Cornell. And then obviously that sweet, sweet day where you have time for research. Um, those days I treat like clinical days. I come in early, do my best work in the morning, do my, my most mentally demanding task first. They say, oh, you should eat your biggest frog first. And I really believe in that. And after lunch, when everyone's pretty postprandial, you tend to your email, you, you, you kind of close loop on certain things and do the, the less cognitively demanding tasks. But that gets you till 5pm and then you got to run home for childcare, which I know, Martin, you're familiar with with, with a two-year-old at home.
0: All too familiar with the uh, childcare during the day and, and childcare overnight still, my right. little two-year-old. Um, and two days in theatre a week sounds fantastic. A lot of our fellows or, or registrars here in the UK would love to have... Um, two days in theater a week and that sounds fantastic um, and a, a lot of our members are are surgeons and perform major endoscopic procedures for, for benign disease like endometriosis and fibroids and you have some notable publications on complications associated with benign gynecological surgery can you tell us a bit more about some of these
1: yeah thanks for asking about that publication so this was a publication that I did now as a medical student it's been a number of years ago where we looked at the incidence of urinary tract injury in benign laparoscopy, and after reviewing what felt like just an interminable amount of studies, we ultimately ended up finding 90 studies that were published over the last 40 years representing over 140,000 surgeries where they reported on the incidence of urinary tract injuries, and what we found it was that the overall incidence is 0.3%, but it varied depending on where in the lower urinary tract you were talking about. So bladder injuries were three times more common than ureteral injuries, and I think people who have spent time in the pelvis, that makes sense for a lot of us. Um, but what we found was that most ureteral injuries, when they do occur, are the result of electrosurgery, about a third of the time, whereas most bladder injuries are actually come from lysis of adhesions. I think with the rise of cesarean sections being performed, both certainly in the United States and abroad, I think a lot of benign gynecologic surgeons are spending time taking down bladder adhesions and you're going to see, you're going to see injury from that. Um, the good thing, the nice thing that we we reported was that ureteral injuries were actually only a third of the time recognized intraoperatively, but two thirds of the time recognized postoperatively. And I think that's really an opportunity for us as surgeons who spend time in the pelvis to be very thoughtful about how we recognize intraoperative injuries or how do we at least dynamically assess for a lower urinary tract injury at the time of surgery? Because the only thing worse than a urinary tract injury is an unrecognized urinary tract injury. And all of us have managed those and knows that know that they can really become a, a disaster really quickly. Um, so I think as a field, it's it's kind of the next big frontier is how do we just become better at identifying these these injuries at the time of and not later?
0: Fantastic. Certainly in my practice for complex endometriosis and, and difficult. Uh, hysterectomies. I tend to use ureteral catheters that are colored either yellow or blue um, and can certainly help identify the ureters intraoperatively and also identify the ureters if they've been injured. Uh, it's one of the kind of mechanisms that I try to use to, to help identify and minimize the risk of injury. Are, are there any specifics that you have to help try and minimize your risks during surgery?
1: So I think the ureteral stents is great. Um, do you place the stents yourself or do you have a urologist place them?
0: I place them myself, yeah, with an, an operative cystoscope.
1: So I think that's probably unique. In the United States, most gynecologists are not comfortable placing ureteral stents themselves. So that requires the extra step of having a urologist available at the time of your surgery to come place the stents and then feeling comfortable to remove them either intraoperatively or postoperatively. So I think most gynecologists in the United States are performing complex surgery or not routinely using stents. I think people will dabble with different versions of a routine cystoscopy at the end to evaluate the bladder dome, the trigone and assess for ureteral jets. We're certainly using fluorescein um, or indocyanine to evaluate more clearly the ureteral jets. But I think all of those things have a have a false positive rate that still leaves me a little bit uncomfortable. I think in a perfect world, if you could actually have stents, and evaluate the bladder and have a feel confident that you haven't injured both the lower urinary tract the bladder i think that to me is the sweet spot but i know there are different ways to do that
0: certainly and surgical safety has come a long way in in the past decade and i think um, hopefully there'll be be further progressions in, in the next so other than the Cochrane review that we're both working on together um that's uh, understandably been very rewarding for you and I. Um, what's been the most um, satisfying publication that you've been involved with?
1: You know in my role as a now senior fellow soon to be attending one of the more gratifying things that we get to do is to help the junior trainees get their publications off the ground and one recent publication that we had with one of our residents here at Well Cornell looked at chronic endometritis and the incidence of but in women with retained products of conception after a miscarriage. And this was something that we started seeing clinically, where we had women who had miscarried, had retained tissue. We performed a hysteroscopy to evacuate that tissue and resolve that pregnancy. But on our pathology specimens, we were getting reports of chronic endometritis, infiltration of plasma cells, CD138 staining. So we said, huh, that's kind of funny. These aren't patients who we classically would have thought had, would have had at least a risk factor for endometritis. So we decided to look at that a little bit further. And we looked at our five-year experience of women with retained products conception and saw that one in four women actually had evidence of chronic endometritis on their pathology at the time of resection which to us was a little eye-opening. I don't think anyone had described that relationship before. But in your reproductive medicine practice, it also raises a whole lot of other questions. What do you do? Is it real? Is it just a result of the inflammatory insult? Is it infectious and does it require antibiotics or a test of cure with a rebiopsy afterwards? So for us, the hypothesis-generating study in those kinds of studies are really some of my favorite
0: that sounds amazing, and it sounds like that's kind of leading on to more questions and, and, and further research that I'm sure you, you and your colleagues are, are hoping to to look into.
1: So the your British your British audience may find it um, useful that in the coming months we'll have a commentary published in a. a edition of BJOG focusing only on infections in pregnancy, where we expand on this topic of a chronic endometritis a little bit further. And in that article, we're really trying to make the argument that endometritis historically has always been viewed as infectious in etiology, but really viewing it as inflammatory in etiology, understanding that there are both infectious and non-infectious causes of inflammation, may actually allow us to further phenotype these patients and better understand which patients require early intervention to reduce the inflammatory insult, like to retain products, or which patients really require a antibiotic course and which antibiotics for these patients. Because I think endometritis is not all just endometritis. And there are some of it that are not due to bugs. And it's just due to having foreign tissue present, creating an inflammatory stimulus to that endometrium that draws in plasma cells and looks like what we think is infectious chronic endometritis but in fact it's sterile and it' just needs to be evacuated and handled a little bit more carefully and quickly to remove that inflammatory stimulus
0: wow fantastic and, and I'm sure yourself and the team at, at wild Cornell are, are hoping to to look into things more closely in the years to come but do you have any advice for our members maybe our, our younger members who might be looking to get involved in academic gynecology how would they go about doing that who should they contact
1: That's a great question, Martin. I think both of us had faced that question at some point in our career. And for me, it was really mentorship. I I gravitated towards people that I wanted to emulate, people that I wanted to have careers similar to. And my early mentors were gynecologic surgeons who also happened to be reproductive specialists. And I enjoyed my time in the theater. I enjoyed my time in the clinic. And I think attaching yourself to someone who can help guide you through those early decisions, but also get you plugged into research and develop what is hopefully an early niche, um, I think, are really the, the, the essential parts to becoming a gynecologic surgeon in academia eventually. And that niche component, I think, is just becoming increasingly important in the world of modern-day healthcare, where the, the, the generalist is, I think, increasingly becoming obsolete, at least in the United States. And you're seeing more and more subspecialization with the rise of the MIGS fellowship in the U.S., for example.
0: I completely agree. And I, I think those standout leaders that are progressing the field and leading societies and leading the way with surgical techniques will attract those trainees and those surgeons that are wanting to emulate them. And so there may be a degree of a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in some centers um but I, I completely agree that finding a mentor, finding someone that will support you, someone that will propel you and advise you during the good times and during the bad, is essential um, for, for those people wanting to follow a career in, in gynecology and academic gynecology.
1: Martin, can I ask you since I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but I'm just as curious. In the United States, we talk a lot about the dying art of a reproductive surgery, at least at the hands of reproductive endocrinologists. And we're seeing a huge sea change where benign minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons, the mixed trained folks in the United States, are taking over a lot of the reproductive surgery that the REIs developed. Laparoscopy, for example, was really pioneered by reproductive endocrinologists. Is the same thing happening in the UK or has it always been in the realm of benign gynecologic surgery to do these cases?
0: That's a really interesting question I've worked in uh, Barts in the London um, Centre for Reproductive Medicine and University College London Hospitals um, that offer tertiary level reproductive medicine and reproductive surgery and for those few teaching hospitals or university affiliated teaching hospitals there is um, a surgical um, capacity there but there is an increasing focus towards reproductive endocrinology um, and we've seen it with the European guidance on endometriosis that more patients are recommended to go through for fertility treatment than for surgery so I think there is a reducing number of patients coming through for surgery Um, particularly for conditions like endometriosis. And then those patients with uh, fibroids are managed both in combination with reproductive surgeons and complex uh, advanced benign surgeons. So it's um, certainly worked under uh, fantastic and esteemed uh, surgeons such as Ertan Saradogan at University College London, who is a reproductive surgeon, uh, as well as Colin Davis at at Barts and the London. And both have have taught me a lot about uh, surgical techniques uh, to optimise fertility and ART. But um, yeah, it really is difficult to know whether the specialty will stay with reproductive surgeons or will move to, to benign gynecologists that potentially have a greater workload.
1: And if reproductive specialists aren't doing those surgeries, they'll become increasingly less comfortable doing those surgeries and the incorporating of the diagnostic laparoscopy after treatment failure will become increasingly difficult because it will refi- require referral out to a subspecialist. And I think you'll you'll just not become part of the workup or the evaluation for patients. So I, I, I would hate to see it go, and I'm glad that there are places in the US and in the UK that are like minded about the role of, of pelvic surgery and reproductive
0: medicine. Completely, and, and there is still a, a major role for the, the reproductive surgeon here in, in the UK, um, and long may that continue. Thinking a little bit about yourself outside of work, you know, we know you are the Superman in, in a white coat uh, rather than a red coat, but what do you do to switch off in your own time?
1: You know, New York City is a funny place place i was in boston massachusetts before new york city for my residency and we moved to new york city six months before the pandemic so i'll tell you pre-pandemic new york was wonderful broadway shows restaurants museums post-pandemic we've had to kind of alter what we do for fun and for us it's really been a lot of reducing the volume of activities but maximizing the quality or the pleasure we get out of them live jazz is still very much a part of Thing that brings me joy outside of work, enjoying coffee. New York has a wonderful coffee scene. Taking in the city by bike, you think it's incredibly unsafe, but people have really stopped driving their cars into the city, and if are working from home, so it's actually a pleasure to bike through the city at off hours. Um, and Central Park is four blocks away, and being able to take in time outdoors with the kids and not worry about being indoors and
0: mass has really been a pleasure these last several months. I, I think it's that. Um... Lack of pleasure that the um, pandemic's taken away from us—that really has kind of made us value what we hold dear. Um, and I'm sure we're all looking forward to getting back to the same activities we were doing prior to the pandemic. But it—it um, it really does highlight what what you what you hold important to you when everything is stripped away. If we can move on to a few um, quick questions uh, about yourself, um, so. Late finish from your theatre session, you're walking home. Do you grab a pretzel or do you grab a hot dog?
1: Uh, Neither. I am in very heavy calorie counting mode right now after trying to shed some of that post-pandemic weight. Um, so I'd, I would say I'd keep walking and just burn the calories and bypass both.
0: Hot, hot dog without the bun. Um, yeah. A sports fan?
1: Well I'm Brazilian and moved to the US when I was quite young but what well, we call it soccer yeah, you call you a, it football soccer but yes person,
0: 100% or are you an american football person soccer soccer good good news um out and entertainment you've already mentioned jazz but um, is there anything else that uh, you do for entertainment
1: we're currently in the thick of watching Lost, which was a very popular American TV series back in the early 2000s and ran right over seven seasons in the United States. And we've slowly made our way, our way through old TV, The West Wing, which is popular in the United States, Mad Men, which is very popular here as well. But I think we're all very excited about the new season of Money Heist that just came out on Netflix uh, this week.
0: Well, I think, I think you're a little bit ahead of us with Netflix, but you, myself and my wife, we're the same. We've gone back to some old series, and I don't know whether you ever watched New Girl. Um, I'm not sure it had seven seasons, but uh, we re rewatched the entire uh, episodes, all episodes and all seasons of, of New Girl. Um, and my daughter's now running around the house shouting parkour as she jumps off things, just like Schmidt, one of the main characters, did. So um thank th- you so much i think
1: for your time. tv is a uh, tv is the modern day comfort food especially old tv it's comfort tv
0: yeah n- not getting it from your calories by the sounds of things pietro but definitely getting it from netflix correct so uh, i would just like to say thank you so much pietro for your time today um and your advice your information and your your um uh, fantastic tutorials and work that you're doing with fertility and sterility i know our members here at the bsg will listen to this with great excitement and they'll really want to to sure tune into the fertility and sterility podcast and the fertility and sterility tutorials um, and if you have any closing remarks or have any events coming up please feel free to uh, to share the information
1: thank you martin and thank you bsge for having me on your wonderful podcast I think if you're interested in kind of continuing to get involved with fertility and sterility and interacting with our content, there's a podcast that comes out at the beginning of every month where we review the best articles from this month's edition of Fertility and Sterility, and we'll often invite special guests to join us to discuss um, Editor's Choice articles. And then finally, I think especially for this audience, if you wanted to find just a rich source of very interesting surgical videos really geared towards the reproductive surgeon, the Fertility and Sterility YouTube account has hundreds of videos that have been submitted as video abstracts to the journal that we host on there with very rich comments and debate that go around them. And I would urge every BSG member to check them out. There's some very interesting um, content there. But again, Martin, thank you for having me. I look forward to tuning into future podcasts and let your listeners know if they want to reach out, they know how to find me.
0: Thank you so much, Pietro, and um, we uh, will uh, look forward to speaking to you again someday on this podcast when I'm sure you're a high-flying attending and professor at uh, at Wild Cornell. Uh, But for now, we'll say goodbye and um, enjoy your time off, and I hope the flooding uh, and storms settle down in New York City. Thanks, Martin. Take care.